One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. So, Jed, I'm really curious what was it like when Isaac Chotner called? Did your life flash before your eyes? Were you terrified? I mean, you survived uh, that interview. I'm, I'm impressed. I will. I would. I literally. I, I got a DM from him, and uh, I DM'd back. LOL. I'm a big <laughs> fan, but I'm not going to be the next blank. Fill in the blank of your favorite law professor, <laughs> who had, uh, who didn't come away with reputation intact from a Chotner interview. Uh, but I also had another friend who uh, had an interview with with him, and uh, it. it uh, it went much smoother for for this friend. So that was, um, he does great work. I will say I've, I've, I think I've talked to Isaac twice for these interviews and I'm still employed. So the, <laughs> the Chadner rule is not a hundred percent. A few of us escape unscathed. You need spicier takes, Quinta. I mean, I guess, apparently. I'm never, I am never picking up the phone. <laughs> he's a, he's a very I have nice saved in my contacts just to avoid him for that purpose. Like all my ex girlfriends. Do not for that pick exact up. Reason. <laughs> I, 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 Isaac, we're all. If you're listening, we're all enormous fans of you, and you go straight to voicemail. <laughs> yes. Well, it was fun. He was. He asked. In truth, uh, it, he asked the questions that I was getting in much more aggressive ways from uh, both anonymous accounts on Twitter and people we know and love and respect. And, uh, and it was actually quite a good opportunity to address those questions. Jed, do you, do you enjoy your new, uh, your new status as a hard right MAGA conservative? You're not, which, you're not wearing the hat, which seems like a mistake on your part. Which I should also say, as someone who literally co-authored a piece about why Donald Trump should go to jail for January 6th, I do find fairly endlessly amusing reading your Twitter replies. <laughs> I, you should see, I, I, I did gain some followers who I expect will also unfollow me uh, uh, pretty soon as I, <laughs> as I explain where I think the case is much stronger and, uh, and, and much more important for those prosecutions. But uh, it was exciting. It was definitely a different uh, experience. So, but thank you for giving me cover, Alan. I, <laughs> was, it was good to be able to link something that shows where I, uh, where I really stand. My pleasure. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I am here with my two regular co-hosts, Ellen Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are thrilled to be here with law professor extraordinaire, uh, man of the hour in some circles, uh, around some topics we'll be discussing today, <laughs> Mr. Jed Sugarman. Jed, thank you for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. Uh, you have been on a, a little bit of a media tear lately, uh, but we're glad you're able to squeeze in with us on Rational Security, probably the least serious media you've done in this entire stretch. Uh, so thank you for finding the time. I think Twitter is the least, by far the least serious media we ever do, but uh, but I'm very happy to be here. Challenge accepted. Jeff. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> 
how many millennial references they make on Twitter. Fair number, actually. Most of them for me, but that's fine. Um, well, we are thrilled to have you here for what we are calling the Catch More Flies with Sugarman edition in your honor. Because you have been catching some strays lately, for better or for worse, <laughs> over uh, a few uh, of a recent op-ed and some other writing you've been doing that we're going to talk about, among some other topics we're excited to get your input on from the week in national security news. Topic one, if you come at the king, you best not whiff. Former President Trump's indictment on 34 counts of falsifying business records in the first degree under New York state law earlier this month has triggered a firestorm of controversy, with several commentators accusing New York District Attorney Alvin Bragg of advancing a weak or flawed case. What should we make of Bragg's case based on what we know so far, and what more information should we be looking for? Topic two, factual malice. Fox News has settled the defamation lawsuit being pursued against it by Dominion Voting Systems for a record $787.5 million but without having to make an honor acknowledgement of its false statements, at least as far as we know. Does this settlement deal do justice? Should Dominion have proceeded differently? And topic three, secret Chinese agents, huh? This is at least the third or fourth time I've referenced a Calgon commercial in one of these that was made before I was born in one of these intros. Surely no one will miss that reference, but that's okay. Federal prosecutors have arrested two individuals in Brooklyn for operating a secret police station on behalf of the People's Republic of China's internal security forces aimed at investigating and intimidating dissidents and other disfavored individuals. How should the United States and other governments approach these China-backed presences? Is criminal prosecution the right tool? To get us started on our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you. Sure. And I, I just realized that this is a triple lawsuit edition, which I feel like happens very rarely. I don't know the last time we've had like three three cases that we've talked about. It's almost so- like we're a law website. <laughs> <laughs> Quint is not. Don't 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 drag Quint into this. <laughs> Quint is not obligated to talk about law stuff, um, even if the rest of us are. But of course, ironically. Quinta, can you explain to us, just remind us, since you've been the one, I think, tracking the details of the uh, of the DA case, what what is the what is the legal theory so far that that we know that Bragg is pursuing? Uh, and then once we've laid that out, then uh, I'd love to turn to Jed and hear his thoughts about why it's a bunch of nonsense. Sure. <laughs> well, with, with that intro, um, so the argument here is essentially that uh, Trump committed a crime under New York state law when he and the people around him worked to coordinate payoffs to two women. The Manhattan case, I believe, actually only concerns the payout to one of them, the uh, porn star Stormy Daniels, in advance of the 2016 election under schemes to essentially purchase their silence so that they would not uh, go public with claims that they had had affairs with Trump back in the early aughts. Um, so the the argument that Bragg is making is that business records on the Trump organization were falsified when the organization recorded payments it made to Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, uh, reimbursements essentially for the payment that Cohen made out of pocket to Daniels as pursuant to a legal retainer um, that they had Cohen on rather than what they actually were, which was repayments for a hush money payment. Now, usually that is a a misdemeanor under New York law. The district attorney, Alvin Bragg, is prosecuting it as a felony under what apparently everybody calls a bump up. Um, So, you know, what bumps it up 
to a felony charge um, that it is done. I don't have exactly the language uh, in front of me, but essentially it's linked to the commission of another crime. Um, now, because he's not required to under New York law, and I know Jed has some thoughts about this, Bragg did not actually say what the bump up crime was. Um, he gave some hints. He suggested that it could be in relation to uh, state or federal election law. We know that there was a violation of federal election law insofar as Cohen pleaded guilty um, to violating federal campaign finance law in, in 2018. Bragg suggested that there, there may be violations of New York state election law as well. I think there was also a suggestion that uh, New York uh, tax law was violated. Um, but we don't have a lot of details now because under New York law, Bragg doesn't actually have to provide that information. So I imagine that we will learn a great deal more about the specific legal theory behind the case um, once this actually gets moving in court. Scott, I know you've also been following this closely and, and took a, a close look at the indictment when it came out for lawfare. Did I miss anything there? No, I think you got the big things that we ID. I mean, we don't know exactly what the underlying facts are. I think that's the basis for a lot of complaints and continuing confusion around exactly what the basis for these charges are. We saw uh, DA Bragg tie and suggest strongly that at least among the underlying predicates for this bump up was state and federal election law, particularly a state provision that kind of prevents or prohibits the unlawful promotion of a candidate by unlawful means, I should say, um, then federal election laws, and then potentially state and federal tax laws as well uh, about income reporting. Uh, and it's all related to the falsifying business records charge. Um, so I think you covered the main thing. Now, of course, that's a limited universe. There may be more there that at times the DA seemed to allude to the possibility of, but wasn't among the list that he kind of specifically articulated in his post-indictment uh, remarks. So I think it's fair to say, Jed, that you are unimpressed. Uh, and you wrote, a, a, I think, a, a, a safe to say, high-profile New York Times op-ed on why. So what's your, what's, what's your complaint? Make the case. Against the case. Well, so uh, I, you know, I, I identified a few problems. And uh, let me start with, I think, the problem that just came up in the summary that you both gave, which is we still don't know what this case is about. I mean, really. After you know four years of of Trump, these events happened in uh, you know the, the the payouts happened in 2016. The false business records happened in 20, 2017. So not only is this indictment happening six years after public knowledge, public awareness, five or six years after we knew the the basic details here of of these allegations, and after a year of the Manhattan DA, uh, the previous Manhattan, D, uh, Manhattan DA Cyrus Vance having these details and having access to this case not bringing it and uh, the DOJ not bringing this case about federal election law, there is at least an appearance of a reversal. I mean, there certainly is a delay. There's an appearance of a reversal. And this is the first time a president or former president's ever been indicted. So I've been arguing for a while that when this indictment came down, and, and, and many others have too, that there should be an additional explanation to meet the questions of legitimacy with especially the partisan focus on uh, on this case. And instead of getting more, <laughs> instead of rising to the occasion and explaining more about not only the allegations, but also explaining why now, there was less than people expected. And in fact, Bragg said in the press conference, he was asked several times about why there wasn't a specified crime that was, quote, the bump up. 
Um, he said, well, I didn't have to. Uh, and this is more or less standard operating procedure in New York, that indictments happen with without specifying much. And there's a process where one uh, uh, files for a bill of particulars later. One of the arguments I made here is that instead of Trump getting treated just like anyone else in New York, I think it's plausible to look at this and say, Trump is probably getting treated worse. Uh, someone else in a similar situation uh, with this degree of delay and an appearance of a reversal would uh, would probably get more of an explanation. And it certainly seems like this is a prosecution in search of a crime. It turns out that I don't think any of the crimes that have been suggested here are either valid ways of of uh, bringing th- those crimes in as in a matter of substance or are not within state jurisdiction. So I guess, Judd, you've, you've raised a, a lot of different issues there. I mean, my, my main question to you is that the question about whether or not Trump is being treated worse. I mean, I've seen uh, a lot of folks who used to work for the Manhattan DA's office, uh, Rebecca Royfe and uh, Daniel Alonso, among others, make this point. People who have practiced uh, criminal law in New York and elsewhere have made the the point that having to file for a bill of particulars is actually extremely common. It happens all the time. It is not unusual. And that, you know, bringing these kinds of cases is not unusual either. Um, that in, in many ways, Trump, you know, really had the red carpet rolled out for him because of just how prominent this case is. I should say, like, look, like, I'm not carrying water for Bragg here either. I, I have a lot of questions about why he made this apparent reversal. But how how is it that we can make these judgments now without actually having seen the evidence of the like what he has on the table? Wouldn't it make more sense to just wait and see what he has and then make that judgment rather than looking at the material that he's put out and saying this shows that there are all these these flaws when it turns out that the elisions that are there are actually extremely common in the criminal justice system? Well, I think that, first of all, I think that raises a larger problem uh, that if this is so common, why is it that it, that it's it's accepted for any New Yorker that the indictment and an arrest would happen with this degree of mystery? I think that's a problem for anybody. And it may be extremely common for a bill of particulars to come later, but I think it's important to look at this indictment and recognize that if you just read these 13 pages, it does not give notice. I mean, it does not explain. I think it's plausible that there isn't even the misdemeanor charge uh, based upon a reading of these documents. And that not only raises concerns about the New York system, I think it shows a lack of consideration of the legitimacy of this prosecution generally. It, it It was incumbent upon D.A. Bragg with so much lead up time and so many questions that he only added more questions. I think I think it was if the point that was made in the Lawfare blog uh, by Lee Kowarski, which is uh, this was a strategy to increase the chances of winning a conviction. A, I think that raises the question or begs the question, what is the uh, what is the role of prosecutors? Is it just to win cases? I, I think that's not how we see things in the 21st century. But I think it also maybe is a bad strategy if it indicates or it raises a question for the public that 
we don't really know why Trump was uh, was indicted. I think that backfires. And I also think that then raises a huge problem for moving into uh, the future, which is you know setting a precedent for uh, indicting or arresting candidates or uh, former former uh, officers of the United States for federal crimes based upon state prosecutions. I think it just doesn't take seriously the significant partisan political problems here and the way it sets a, a bad precedent for the first time in American history. Yeah. So you mentioned a, a piece that Lee Kowarski at the University of Texas Austin wrote for, for Lawfare that I definitely encourage people to read alongside Jed's New York Times op-ed. I think they uh, play off one another well and sort of give a really useful understanding of the different legal issues here. I will say my understanding from working with Lee on that piece is that he's certainly not arguing that this is like a good thing that the criminal legal system works this way. He's rather describing the fact that this is often how it's done. And so Trump isn't being treated particularly worse than anyone else. But Scott, I want to pass the baton to you because I know you had something as well. Well, I mean, it, tying back to this, it sounds like your main concern here, Jed, is a policy and optics concern on this particular issue. There doesn't seem like there can actually be or is likely to be an actual underlying constitutional or legal problem for a practice that's been widely pursued. And if I, my recollection is that the bill of the particular process actually was wide, way more widespread earlier in American history that we've actually seen a move away from it. But that would suggest that any constitutional issues dating back you know, to whether it's the Sixth Amendment or wherever they may arise from, would be less likely to raise if it was pretty widespread practice back closer to the time of the framers. So it doesn't seem very likely to say, oh, well, this is the case that will draw break the camel's back. This issue that is widespread practice is going to suddenly result in an unconstitutional outcome. The same with the statute of limitations. You know, the DA's argument, we've seen lots of people point out that there's various prisons in New York state law that seem like they have present a colorable argument, at least, about why the statute of limitations isn't really an issue. These are fair politics and optics concerns, but how likely is it to actually interrupt the effectiveness of the case in terms of arriving at a conviction? Right. It's it, it's my fault for not being clear about this. I, I am saying that, that the delay raises a legitimacy problem that's not just about optics. But it's not a. I'm not saying there's a Sixth Amendment violation here. I'm saying there is a problem when it comes to prosecutorial ethics and the legitimacy of this prosecution as a matter of law and precedent. So let me be clear about what my argument is about what the prob, what the substantive problems are. It is not a constitutional problem. Uh, it is not an Article Two problem. It's not a Sixth Amendment problem. There are many state and federal statutory problems about all of the things that we've been speculating about. But let me just pause and say the reason why everyone is still speculating now, and who knows how long people will be speculating, th that's a problem for the fairness of this prosecution. One commentator, I think it was a on uh, one of the New York Times podcasts, said essentially what it feels like is uh, that Alvin Bragg has put out a very a, a, about a, as ambiguous an indictment as possible and is now crowdsourcing on law Twitter the arguments that go either way before he specifies what his actual case is. And I think that's right. Uh, let me let me explain why there are so many problems here with what Bragg has just mentioned. So first of all, and I'll do this very briefly, nothing in the indictment or in the statement of facts says tax fraud. The phrase used is mischaracterized for tax purposes. But what we know enough about to raise questions about why there would be a, quote, tax fraud is it is we know that Trump paid Cohen more 
to pay the income taxes, which would be at a higher rate uh, than the business taxes, the bottom line there is it looks like Trump and Cohen purposely overpaid their taxes to the federal government and the state of New York because it was a campaign finance scheme, not a tax scheme. So that is that's that's likely an explanation for why when Bragg puts a diagram up about the case, there is a reference to state election law federal election law, but no bubble for any tax question. Okay. So I think it's important to see that this is, this is more like allegations and a cloud of suspicion. I think that's a problem on state election law. Uh, it turns out that one of the things that uh, Alvin Bragg mentioned and quoted in his press conference was uh, state election law 17152, which is about public offices in that same article 17 in New York. The definition of public officer is state or, I'm paraphrasing, but state or local officer. It, the election law of New York in Article 17 looks like it only applies to state and local officials. I looked it up. I couldn't find any application of that statute to any federal office. One could stretch it out and say, well, electors are state. I think that's, I think that's a, a stretch. And what this indicates is, you know, there is a there are more questions than answers at every turn. Let me specify two things that are more concerning beyond what I wrote in my New York Times piece because I was doing that quickly and there was research I was doing that I wasn't ready to say conclusively. But on the question of using, first of all, the state law, which is 17510 for false filings, the question I raised in the New York Times piece was that in all the cases that are cited by the supporters of this indictment, it is uh, no one has identified a case like this where all of the uh, documents were internal non-filing documents and the statute in New York says there has to be intent to defraud. It appears that the in practice, New York prosecutors do not bring cases like this. I, frankly, I'm a little concerned about, you know, Quinta, when you mentioned these other former New York uh, Manhattan DA veterans, they didn't identify cases. They went on Twitter, and I think this is really problematic. Um, they went on Twitter to, in some ways, do a public relations blitz for the Manhattan DA office. And they said things like, we do this all the time. But I can't find any cases like this. Internal documents, and I can, you know, if, if, if you want to follow up on that question, I can explain why this is more problematic, but it does raise questions about what it means to intent, to have intent to defraud with a document that no one else would rely on and is likely not part of the scheme. The final novelty, right, uh, the, is that about preemption. There's been a lot of back and forth about, well, you can do this, you can do that. And frankly, lots of people have said, well, federal, the federal prosecutors use state crimes and state prosecutors use federal crimes. This inner jurisdictional thing happens all the time. And I think that misses the point. It misses the point that this is a preempted federal statute, which is raising new questions not addressed by Cohen's guilty plea. And the last thing I did in terms of the backup research is that there are 208 cases in the Westlaw database for state cases that refer to the Federal Election Campaign Act of 1971. It's possible I missed one, but I haven't found a single state that were a state court that has reviewed any prosecution using a FICA violation as either the, the, the main crime or the predicate crime. And so people can speculate, but either way, there is massive, massive novelty here. In the end, what I think this does is it clearly tees up a one, at least a one-year delay in federal court without you know, getting 
with younger abstention in the background, et cetera, all the Fed court stuff that people have studied, it's certainly enough like Trump versus Vance proceedings that this case would never, would not go to trial until like October of the election year um, or after the election. And I think a DA has to take that timing into consideration. Yeah. So let me, let me make one point piggybacking off what you said there and then I'll pass it to Scott because I know he has something to say. And then, Jed, we can we can go back to you. I My understanding from the the former folks in the Manhattan DA's office, who I certainly did not understand as making a, a you know, PR push for the office, but rather just, you know, engaging in in conversation and, and debate about an issue of public concern was that often, you know, that they, they know that they've prosecuted these cases, but that because of the way that New York state law and New York courts work, that these cases happen not to be recorded. So they certainly have happened. They're just not showing up in, in databases. Um, I just wanted to put that on the on the table there so listeners are aware of the counterargument. Scott, let me pass it to you. No, I think that that's, a, that's a good point to raise here. You know, and, and going back to the underlying points, I mean, we did actually see Bragg pretty clearly, I thought, in, in his statements after the indictment, pretty clearly suggest that there are underlying tax issues. The assumption that overpaying taxes isn't a, is, a, is a means by which you can actually violate obligations to accurately disclose your income, I'm not sure is a, is a sound assumption. Is there case law supporting that? Because um, obviously, tax disclosure obligations exist in the books for a lot of reasons, not simply to determine the right amount of income tax paid on the amount paid. It's it's a accuracy and disclosure obligation. Um, so I'm not sure why that would defeat those, particularly because that was clearly their intent here is to misrepresent the amount of income provided, perhaps for other reasons, but that's still the underlying intent behind the apparent violation here, if, if you accept that that's a valid violation. But more fundamentally from all this about this preemption point, that really was the focus I, I read of your of your op-ed, although I know you've written about other aspects of this in other places. It's curious to me because it seems to be assuming that that state law cannot, in fact, build a criminal offense that references or brings in a FICA violation, which seems strange. If a state law said, in fact, hey, to apply for a job with the state agency, you are obligated to accurately disclose all your prior federal convictions or federal charges brought about against you in federal court, and one is a FICA violation, would a state legislature be prohibited from doing that? Could they, could they not prosecute an individual for falsely misrepresenting, no, I did not commit this FICA violation when in fact they had? Because that's actually really similar in my mind to what's happening here. And that's the sort of thing state legislatures do all the time in a, in a, because it's essentially an obstruction type statute, nor in obstruction cases are we usually sitting around waiting for a conviction of the underlying offense to happen before we bring obstruction charges. You bring the obstruction on the idea that this person was intentionally avoiding what they understood to be a crime. So how does this actually enter in to this underlying issue? It, it seems clear like this is the reason they're structuring their arrangements this way is because they're worried about these disclosure obligations. Failing to comply with is a crime. Right. Well, let me just observe again that I think there in this discourse, uh, lots of people say there's overlapping jurisdiction. This this kind of thing happens with state and federal references all the time. First of all, not clearly, not about preemption. So, you know, what, what your examples, Scott, did not address is, well, what happens if there is an explicit preemption uh, about that relate that, about that issue that's direct. So, uh, so that's that's one problem that it's really hard, and that relates to why there are. It's I can't find a FICA case in any state court that's used it. It's because it's particularly about preemption. But let me specify and and be concise about what the problem is with the example you gave. 
Michael Cohen did plead guilty to a FICA violation. And then, then given that he pleaded guilty about his own violation, he'd have to report it. But what I think Lee Kowarski and, and lots of people have missed here is that there's a gap between Michael Cohen as a lawyer pleading guilty with that, you know, again, setting, let's set aside all the concerns that this was a guilty plea that the prosecutors wanted and added fine. He, he did plead guilty, but there is a very large gap between Michael Cohen's criminal liability established for this, for this crime and what is then has to be proven about Donald Trump. Now, I think it's likely, but I think that it, what preemption says is what jurisdiction should be evaluating this. The New York state statute, both 175.05 and 175.10 require intent to defraud. And even in the narrowest way of just that it was Trump concealing Cohen's crime, it's still, if you read the statute, it requires an intent to defraud and intent dot, dot, dot to conceal. That double intent of Trump's is a different mens rea requirement relating to intent, intent to defraud, which relates to knowledge, white collar crimes. And this area of law is famous for being hard to prove because it requires a specific amount of mens rea and background. So what that raises is that this is very different from the example that you brought up, Scott. This isn't about Michael Cohen having to having pled guilty and then having to reveal it. This is a new case. This is Donald Trump's criminal liability. I think it's a strong case. I think it's a strong case for federal court, for a federal prosecutor. And that is what Congress told us. And that's what New York State affirmed in several different places by saying uh, New York State election law is for state elections, for state court. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, there is a lot more to talk about this, certainly many other issues I'd like to probe a little deeper and get a little more ground truth on, but we are out of time for the moment. I have to move on to our next segment. But Jed, before we do, I want to congratulate you. Just as you have survived an Isaac Chotner interview, you have survived, you know, a little, a little bloodied, a little bruised, but I, I think we can say your, your career remains, you know, as good as it was before. Rational and secure, as we like to say. That's, that's why we call the podcast that. I, I, well, I did. T- I, I did tell my wife that I was coming on this uh, this show, Rational Security, uh, and she said, "I think you're being irrational or maybe a little insecure." <laughs> that's why. That's we're just trying to make ourselves feel better. That's why we call the show that. That's exactly right. Well, let us go on to the other big news of not just the week, but of the day, because in the last 24 hours, at least the time we're recording this, not the time you'll be listening to it, we saw big news come out of the Dominion defamation suit we have all been following, which Dominion Voting Systems was pursuing, if I recall correctly, $1.6 billion in damages in a defamation claim against Fox News for 
misrepresentations that Fox News and various agents of Fox News made in covering the 2020 election and making allegations about Dominion's role in falsifying election results in various ways. Instead of going to trial, as was expected to start yesterday, we saw a settlement, a very last minute settlement arrived where Dominion accepted over $780 million in damages, making this the largest defamation settlement that we're aware of, at least on the public record. The prior largest was a 2012 settlement with CBS News for $112 million over the Pink Slime beef products case that we all may remember from about 10 years ago, uh, which is a real flashback, a little bit of nostalgia for me over the Pink Slime days. Um, as it, whereas one of those great moments for as a vegetarian, I just got to laugh at the rest of the country over uh, their foolish decisions and what they choose to eat. But uh, this is pretty historical and groundbreaking. But the one thing we don't see coming out of this settlement is a clear obligation on Fox News to acknowledge to particularly their audience to whom they misled with this information that what they said was inaccurate. We heard some acknowledgement of this come from Fox News attorneys uh, in a public hearing afterwards, uh, public comments, I believe, made after the settlement was announced. This is my recollection. But we haven't seen any actual statement or any sort of detailed news, nor frankly has the settlement gotten much coverage on Fox News as far as we're aware, at least according to people who have been tracking it. So Quinta, you've been watching this case very closely. Tell us a little bit about your sense of how this settlement came about and what we think it means for this broader strategy we've really seen being pursued in a lot of different fronts against Fox News, against Alex Jones, against others, using defamation as a way to push back against the rapid spread of misinformation in certain quarters of our media ecosystem. Yeah. So as you say, Scott, I think it's it's really best to understand the Dominion lawsuit not as sui generis and not even as one lawsuit of the many that Dominion and uh, another voting machine company that was defamed, Smartmatic, have filed against Fox and other right-wing media organizations, but as part of a kind of a broader move toward trying to counter lies polluting the civic discourse by filing specific defamation cases. Uh, We've also seen uh, the organization Protect Democracy has filed a number of cases on behalf of the Georgia election workers, uh, Ruby Freeman and uh, Shea Moss, uh, who were arguably defamed by Rudy Giuliani and and other right-wing networks um, and others sort of pursuing this same uh, approach. So I will say I I called in to the the open line to listen to the the opening arguments for Dominion um, yesterday and was rewarded with I I want to say like three and a half hours of dead silence and occasional muttering as there was just nothing happening in the courtroom and like not, was, like not even some Kenny G like they couldn't have even piped no. some Yanni like across the. On, Take it guys. up with Delaware Superior Court. Oh, um, so, and, and ke- so keeping an eye on Twitter, I was not in Wilmington. Uh, the reporters in the courtroom were not allowed to tweet, although I think some of them actually were tweeting. There were also reporters in the overflow room. Everyone was getting super antsy. No one knew what the hell was going on. I was keeping a close eye on the Twitter account at chancery underscore daily, which follows the uh, Delaware Court of Chancery, in which I'd highly recommend to anyone uh, newly interested in Delaware corporate law. They're fantastic. Just trying to figure out what what the hell was going on. And the judge had said that they were going to end at 4.30 sharp. So as, as the clock crept toward four, I think we were all wondering what on earth was going on. And then the judge came back into the courtroom and announced that the parties had settled. And as you say, Scott, so the so this is a payout of seven hundred and eighty-seven point five million 
um, which is a significant fraction of the $1.6 billion that Dominion, I think, somewhat aspirationally asked for originally. It is, according to the New York Times, one of the largest defamation payouts that's ever been publicly reported in the United States. But also, as you say, I think it has now been confirmed that the settlement does not require Fox to issue any kind of attraction on air apology, acknowledgement, anything. Uh, Dominion's lawyers were asked about this repeatedly. Uh, I believe on the radio this morning, one of them said, money is an apology. So there you have it. Um, And Fox, as you say, hasn't really been covering this. They had a very short story that went up on their website this morning. I think it was under 200 words. Uh, It doesn't give any details about the details of the settlement or even what the case was about. Um, And what's really striking is that the statement that Fox made in response to the settlement doesn't even acknowledge that Fox broadcast falsehoods. It acknowledges that the court found that Fox broadcast falsehoods. So that's that's pretty weak. We acknowledge the court's ruling finding certain claims about Dominion to be false. And this is referring to the court's ruling on the motions for summary judgment, where the the judge did find that uh, Fox had had broadcast lies. So all of this, I think, has led to a lot of frustration about the ability of defamation lawsuits to push back against lies. And what I would say to that is, first off, this is not over. Um, As Smartmatic was very eager to remind everyone after the the settlement of the Dominion suit. These cases are ongoing. I do think that, you know, look, Dominion was able to get past the motion to dismiss stage in this case. Most of these cases, I have a giant spreadsheet, have gotten past the motion to dismiss cage. That is really unusual in a defamation lawsuit. And I think shows just how strong this evidence is. And as we all know, once you get past the motion to dismiss stage, you get discovery. And Dominion was incredibly pointed and aggressive in releasing discovery material that it had gotten from access to Fox records and depositions. And I think we now have a pretty extraordinarily damning understanding of Fox's operations and how efforts to you know, keep its audience share moved it to pursue falsehoods. That is a big achievement. That said, obviously, yes, like this is a private party suing. It has an incentive to get as much money as it can. Dominion is owned by a private equity company. So there's that. It's an individualized injury with an individual plaintiff. And that's not going to solve the broader problem of societal falsehoods. But I do think that, you know, we should be careful to not sort of say, you know, the legal system failed us once again or something like that. It's a mistake to put too much on the back of uh, a system that was never going to produce a, you know, groveling apology from Fox. So it's best to kind of understand the limitations of what this approach can and can't do. And I think the Dominion case is a really good model for that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, look, I, I, I'm obviously, I would have loved nothing more than for Tucker Carlson to have to apologize to his audience. You know, I, I do wonder how much of a difference that would ultimately make. You know, it'd make it would make me feel really good. And if we really thought that the problem was that the audience just kind of didn't understand or was confused or something and Tucker could tell them, then they'd be like, oh, that was a big whoopsie or now we don't like Tucker anymore. Maybe then it would be worth getting sort of more upset about the lack of an on-air apology. I just I just don't know if that's true, right? Like, I just, I just worry that like you could have a Tucker apology and everyone would kind of understand that it's performative, kind of in the most literal sense of the term. And then tomorrow, the Fox ecosystem, both the hosts and the audience, was just sort of memory hole that that apology ever happened. Um, Because who would remind them, right? Like all the like mainstream or 
media would cover it endlessly. It would be like the only thing you know, late night left-wing comics would talk about forever. Like we'd have a big laugh about it. But of course, the whole point is that they all live in an epistemically closed universe anyway. So, you know, I, I, I do think that, uh, and again, like I was very, very annoyed when I realized that there probably is not going to be an on-air apology. But in the long run, I do think it's a mistake to get too sort of wrapped up with that. And, and also, you know, although, yes, you know, the legal system is an, kind of an, a limited way of vindicating the societal interest at stake here because it's, you know, a plaintiff versus a plaintiff and the, the settlement is voluntary, right? The, the judge does not have to, does not reject it if it's not in the public interest, right? The, just, the judge just, you know, it's a settlement. This is so large and that I have to assume that in the long term, when media organizations like Fox go and try to get legal insurance, for example, you know, those insurers are going to demand a little more than they used to because, or they're going to charge higher premiums. Um, so, so there are ways in which you do have sort of positive system-wide outcomes. A and look, I mean, this is just one lawsuit. And I think it's notable, you know, if we know that uh, Dominion got $750 million out of Fox. I mean, Smart Matt is going to want $750 million out of Fox too. And, you know, presumably the individuals won't get quite that much, but, you know, this is going to be a lot more expensive than $750 million for, for Fox. And at some point that's real money. <laughs> right. Can I can jump in on just, I think two different questions about, you know, whether truth matters in this, you know, political ecosystem. Uh, there's a friend of mine who wrote an article called the authentic appeal of the lying demagogue. Uh, this is uh, Ezra Zuckerman, Sivan and uh, co-authors, Oliver Hall um, and Min J Kim. And what they found with, uh, with focus groups and legitimacy is that uh, there was a value to lying. That saying things that the audience knew were, was untrue was a signal of the depth of commitment to the the worldview, the cultural commitment. And so lying is not a bug; it's a feature uh, for those who feel like they're outsiders. I mean, this is this is the diff it, those who feel like they're inside the political community value truth telling. Those who are outsiders want to you know who want to challenge the norms and the establishment uh, are more comfortable with in the domain of conspiracy theories or truthiness or what was the terrible line uh you know you taking trump seriously but not literally right i mean there that caught on as a cliche because it was true so the question for fox news is that those viewers who stuck around they needed fox news had to lie we now know that they were losing viewers when they after the um fox news called the state of arizona for Biden earlier than everyone else. There was a legitimacy crisis for Fox News with its audience, not because it was telling the truth or getting things right, but because it wasn't culturally committed to its viewers. And so it, it may be the cost of doing business is that you know Fox has to price in defamation now uh, in order to, as its business model, to retain its viewers. And the question is, at what point do, do these lawsuits become enough of a deterrent function. I don't think it happens yet, but I, you know, there are, you know, as we're saying, there are other suits coming at some point that's got to be priced in. What we're still waiting for, frankly, is a lawsuit that goes to a jury with a punitive damage award. I, I think I understand what Dominion was doing in breaking the ice here. It was the right call because we don't know what the constitutional claims might be. They had to price in the Roberts court, but now other plaintiffs can price in this lawsuit as breaking through and then getting to a jury might get a punitive damage award that's designed to 
make it uh, not worth the cost of doing business for Fox to continue what it's doing. Yeah, I just want to f- follow up. I'm I'm so glad you you brought up that that piece because I think it the the point about how valuable a known lie is to the audience to which it is directed is so important, right? The, the the whole idea is that it's a sign of group identification, and in fact, the more ridiculous the lie is, and the more not just ridiculous the lie is, but the more that sort of the quote unquote elites, right? The the mainstream, like us, right, freaks out about the lie and criticizes the lie. Actually, the better the lie is for group identification. I mean, this is, you know, like there, there's a long tradition of thinking it about this way to explain social phenomenon. There's a whole theory of like why religious cults actually do well, like the weirder they are, the better they do. And it's because it, you know, if you believe something like super duper crazy, Everyone else in society is going to shun you, which means that the people that you're claiming to be a member of know that you are serious about committing, right? It's like it's like the epistemic version of a face tattoo, right? Um, uh, and so you know, there, there is and there is an element of of that. And and you're right. The the question is like m- money is the one thing that sort of can put a break on that. And so you know wh- where is that's that right. line? That's exa- that's what punitive damages should be designed to do in this case. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's a really astute point. And that that's going to be something that's going to be kind of the next frontier in these efforts, I think. Um, although it is tricky in a media context, maybe you'd have a better angle in like an Alex Jones context where you are like less directly assaulting what people see still as a part of mainstream media, if perhaps a little bit to one side of it, like Fox News. What I would say, though, is, is two things about this. One, there's one constraint on this, this sort of model in my mind, which is that Fox News' business model is still a mass consumption model. Right. It's worried about losing its discrete, most committed, probably, let's be honest, most likely to spend money in ways that that Fox can capitalize on audience to Infowars, these other groups that are much more the face tattoo cult, you know, reproducing this ecosystem of misinformation. But Fox News still also relies on the fact that it has very broad watchers and broad listenership, right? It can't lose that core audience. That's what it's trying to keep. But it still has to balance that with the need to keep the rest of the audience. Now, will that be a problem? I don't know. You know, I think Fox has a pretty well-established history of misrepresenting a variety of things, uh, and yet that doesn't seem to be hurting them with that broader population. Um, But it is a constraint at some point. You know, they've got to maintain enough credibility for their broad mass consumption while still catering enough to to the smaller audience that they were worried about losing in this case. The other constraint, though, is a trickier one, um, which is that this is a risk that probably Fox and other similar groups didn't think was that serious until this lawsuit in this last few years. Like, this is a unique breakthrough case. That means a few things. It means, one, they probably weren't fully ready for it in terms of their like internal document management, right? They did a lot of stupid things and put a lot of stupid things on paper and then still had those records when they got sued for it a few years later. They don't have to. Uh, a lot of corporations take much more aggressive measures about limiting communications and just frankly disposing of records on a regular scheduled basis that's permitted that would get rid of a lot of this evidence. And that would make future cases potentially hard. I kind of suspect this means that there's a real window here for people who think they may have defamation claims where they will be able to get substantial discovery that's going to be very useful to them if they can get past that motion to dismiss phase. That window may be closing, or at least the amount of evidence you get the back end from discovery probably going to get smaller because now Fox News and other companies that may be subject to this risk have a lot more incentive to say, oh, crap, we really need to think about our internal management and litigation risk exposure the way other companies do and take steps to mitigate that. Now, you don't need that information necessarily for all these suits. Like, I don't know if the Alex Jones one really hinged that much on material acquired through discovery. They had a very strong case to make just based off the public record. Um, And there might be other cases. But you know, it is tricky. It means that there is kind of a window where particularly folks like Spartanmatic 
should be moving on these sooner rather than later, both because they can build on what Dominion's already gotten through Discovery and probably at least for a while get records that might be relevant to their case either because they're on a litigation hold for Dominion because it's such related claims or just because they haven't you know implemented some sort of internal management reten- document retention policy. But I worry a few years from now, the next people are going to be in a lot less opportunistic moment to, to capitalize on discovery material like that. Yeah, I think it's also important to note that um, so in the Alex Jones trial, um, at least one of them, uh, families were the Sandy Hook families were awarded uh, over one point four billion, including punitive damages, and they still haven't gotten that money because Jones has been able to work through the bankruptcy system to sort of move it out of their reach. Infowars is still operating, and I believe is still profitable. So it's worth even being cautious about what punitive damages can do. All right. With that in mind, uh, let us move on to our third topic, which is about a pair, actually a a trio of indictments um, coming out of the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York. Uh, The the scrappy, not not as cool, perhaps, as SDNY, but we love them anyway. Way cooler. As a former (laughs) former summer intern at EDNY, I can vouch that they are way cooler and the pizza options are much better. There you go. So so this is a, a trio of indictments, as I said. So as Scott mentioned, there are two uh, people who were arrested for operating uh, what the Justice Department refers to as an illegal overseas police station of the Chinese government. The, the FBI uh, raided the office, seized material from, from within it, and has now charged these folks with essentially surveilling Chinese citizens in the United States and trying to kind of extend Chinese power overseas. There are also uh, two criminal complaints against uh, 44 defendants total that were unsealed, charging members of the National Police of the PRC with efforts to harass uh, Chinese nationals in New York and around the country over the internet. Um, so I, I will note, this is just a complaint to EDNY. You said that the criminal complaints were unsealed. They are not unsealed. I went to PACER. They're not there. Uh, the the two folks who were arrested uh, for operating the police station, you can get that complaint, but you can't get the others. So please unseal that. Uh, but these these cases, I think it's, it's all consistent with what's been called a broader trend of transnational repression, right? So, you know, you cannot any longer leave your repressive country of origin and sort of be confident that you're going to be free, that this is still a situation where the Chinese government is potentially monitoring you, spying on you, trying to put pressure on you. So Scott, I want to turn to you first. What do you make of this in kind of the, the foreign policy space? How, do we, how should we think of this in terms of the, the broader tensions between the United States and China? It's definitely a notable step, um, right? We saw a real effort by the Trump administration to use the criminal justice system in often very controversial ways, ways that people were worried verged on bias, racial bias or cultural bias to pursue people who were engaging in research and otherwise affiliated with China. We've seen the Biden administration walk that back, but then try and find other avenues to use the criminal justice system and investigation to push back on other aspects of problematic Chinese behavior. And this strikes me as a very fruitful avenue for that. The issue of these police stations has been on the radar. I think we've actually talked about it before on the podcast uh, for a while. The United States is actually not even the biggest test case. Some of the biggest accusations are actually throughout Europe, um, where a number of countries uh, are believed to have a number of these stations operating. I think According to NGO allegations, although the government's disputed these, Italy is number one where they have 11 stations. Italy also one of the few Western European countries that signed up for 
the Belt and Road Initiative with China and is actively cultivating Chinese trade ties, although it's not clear it's really produced that much yet. So it is a really sort of uh, tricky situation and tricky practice that China has put itself into. Like these offices are running, are, are run nominally by volunteers and they do things on their face like help people apply for benefits or deal with visa issues, all things that are usually done through consulates and consular offices. Like this is what the U.S. government maintains consular offices for abroad uh, or consulates in different places outside of the main embassy when they're in foreign countries is what foreign governments do in the United States. So it's weird that China's choosing to delegate this out to individuals that don't have the legal protection that consular officers would have, uh, which would include a substantial amount of immunity, not necessarily full criminal immunity, um, as we're associated with full diplomats, but substantial legal immunity that would certainly cause an issue and cause diplomatic issues here. And so there is a possibility that China is going to just shift some of these conduct back to its consular officers. But the fact they weren't doing that in the first place may mean that there's internal political reasons why that's an issue. Maybe the foreign ministry of China just is not comfortable overseeing and doing this under its auspices. Um, so it's been shunted off to kind of private contractors run by the Internal Security Bureau um, that's kind of running these. Who, who knows exactly? China's a politically very much a black box. And so it's hard to know exactly why um, we see these things being pursued this way. The key point, though, I think, is that so long as China's continuing to do it this way, this is a totally valid route. Um, we can see them pursuing these. We can see the U.S. government push back against and European governments, I think, are likely to follow, um, at least some of them, because we know they're under a lot of public pressure to pursue these sorts of action. The United States is kind of the canary in the coal mine to be the first one to bring these charges. Uh, although I do believe European governments, some European governments have taken immigration action and possibly in some cases, some consular kind of uh, removal actions to deal with some of these. I could be wrong, but I believe I read reports to that effect. So long story short, there's going to be a new front in this conflict. It may be a short-lived one. There may be steps China can take to kind of mitigate this as a strategy that then will require the United States and other governments to take other steps like kicking consular officers out of the country if they choose to engage in things like this. But for the time being, it's one more useful front to push back against really problematic behavior on the Chinese government's part in a way that's probably going to resonate a lot with a lot of Americans for whom free speech is such a core value. Yeah, I, I, so I, I agree with everything Scott said. I, I just want to kind of sort of zoom out a little bit and, and, and to use this to think about sort of what America's response should be to the increasing repression of the Chinese Communist Party. So, you know, on the specific issue of these kinds of law enforcement investigations, I think they are fabulous and we should invest like infinite amount of, you know, resources in exactly this sort of prosecution. And this sort here being where you are going after the Chinese Communist Party itself so that you don't then have to go after Chinese nationals or American citizens with ties to China. Because, um, you know, as we saw from, for example, the you know, so-called China Initiative of DOJ, there is real drawbacks to going after the individuals who, you know, are being pressured uh, or enticed, you know, by the Chinese government to, uh, you know, act for Chinese interests and against American interests, right? And that concern is, well, A, you might have some false positives, which is really, really bad um, if you're one of these people swept up in that. And 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 B, um, there's a stigma, right? I, I, I don't think it's the case that, you know, focusing on the, the threat from China um, is an example of xenophobia, right? And I think it's, it's often a lazy argument to say that that is the case. But there's no question that it can be. And there's no question that it can contribute to an environment uh, where that is the case. And so whenever possible, 
um, you want to intervene in this situation um, in a way that doesn't contribute to that. And going after Chinese secret police stations in the United States is just like a perfect, perfect, perfect way of doing it. So I just totally commend DOJ for doing that. And I, I hope they do it sort of uh, much more. You know, I, I also think that there needs to be just a broader strategy of, of how we think about again, the increasing repression of the Chinese Communist Party against its own citizens and against those who are abroad, but sort of still connected to China. Doing things like this is great. But other things like making it very, very easy for people from China to immigrate to the United States, especially those who can show even any basic credible evidence that they are suffering repression, right? And and not just you know, the high profile stuff that we see, for example, with regard to the Uyghurs in Shenzhen, though obviously they should be able to come in as much as they want. But just like, you know, if, if you're in China and you just are feeling like that is no longer a culture you want to be in and you want to come here, we should be encouraging that. And there's a great um, Noah Smith as a, a blogger and writer, um, there's a great piece that we'll link to sort of making that argument out in, in greater depth. Now, obviously, that raises its own concerns because, of course, if you increase immigration, then you have to do vetting and et cetera, et cetera. But I think on net, there's no question that there's an opportunity here to get those folks who don't want to live in Xi Jinping's China to, to come here. And uh, it would be a shame if we didn't take advantage of that. I mean, I'm a little biased, I guess. And you know, my parents are Soviet Jewish refugees who left in the late 1970s and early 80s. And exactly, you know, the, the parallels are remarkably similar. And fortunately for me, um, and I think fortunately for the country it, as a general matter, because of the incredible people that came over, um, there was a broad consensus in the late 70s and early 80s that like, man, if, if you were Jewish in the Soviet Union, you could come here, right? Like piece of cake, no big deal. Um, but we think, I think we need a similar thing for that for China. I mean, I think we need a similar thing for that for Russia as well, right? In, in a similar way, given what's happening right now. I, I worry that unfortunately our, our immigration debate honestly, on both sides, is is just not particularly open to that sort of bold uh, strategy. Well, folks, we are getting to the end of our times. So we'll have to leave the conversation there for this week for a tight uh, and more efficient episode of Rational Security than some of our pat ones in the past due to some time constraints. But this would not be Rational Security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Jed, why don't you go ahead and get us started? What do you have for us for object lessons this week? I actually have an object uh, for for object lessons, which is my uh, colleague's book, Golda Meir and Her Path to the Only Woman in the Room, Golda Meir and Her Path to Power by Panina Lahav, and it raises a lot of questions that relate to national security and politics and law. But one of the things I just want the, the what I'm going to be commenting on this on the book panel this afternoon is a story that. Panina goes into much more detail on about uh, Golda Meir's rise in the in 1956. She was uh, the appointed within the cabinet as foreign minister. And what I didn't understand, what I, I knew that she was around and 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 high in uh, in Israeli politics before becoming prime minister. But the story that unfolds is that the um, the Sinai crisis, the the Suez crisis. Uh, with Nasser uh, is is unfolding, and it seems is or it, from the narrative, it's possible that as both an American, uh, who, someone who was born in uh, born in Ukraine, but then was raised in America, she had better English than uh, many others who were rising up in the American in the Israeli political ranks. Um, but also as a woman in the run up to the war, and then she had concerns she sh shared privately about Israel coordinating with Great Britain and France. 
in what appeared at the time to be an extension of the colonial enterprise of the 1950s in retaining control of the of that part of the world. And they manipulated Israel into having a pretext invasion that would allow the war to unfold. And, and behind closed doors, Golda Meir shared these concerns. But then once the decision was made, she had this prominent role on the world stage in negotiating with the Eisenhower administration and many sexist uh, men in the Eisenhower administration, and then going to the UN to be the representative. And what Panina Lahav shows is that she played up the background of being a grandmother and a homemaker and uh, presenting sort of a diplomatic and grandmotherly image that was, I think, both manipulated and that, you know, it was chosen uh, by some of the Israeli political leadership to be the, to represent Israel at a time of war. And it raises questions about identity and privilege. I mean, in some ways, I'm able to talk about Israeli colonialism because I'm leaning into my Jewish American semi-observant privilege to be able to say things that others can't say about Israel, like asking the question of, is Israel really a democracy? Like, I use that I'm part of my identity and privilege. I use my identity as a critic of, of a, as a prominent critic and someone of, of Trump and someone who's litigated and filed, you know, lots of amicus briefs against Trump to be able to say something that others might not, which is raising questions about the Manhattan DA. So it's it's not simply a question of whether you know should women be involved in national security. That's not my point. My point is that it, this book uh, and with the way that Penina Lahab tells it is a fascinating story about the way that all of us especially those in in politics, uh, uh, both get chosen for these parts of our identity and how we lean into them and then how we use them. Maggie Thatcher, eat your heart out, is all I can say <laughs> when it comes to Golda Meir. Quinta, what do you have for us this week? Yeah, I will engage in some, some log rolling. Um, so I have a piece that is currently in edits, but dear listener, by the time you listen to that, you, it will be up hopefully on, on Lawfare about the Dominion litigation and the broader trend toward using defamation litigation as a way to kind of push back on lies and aspirationally, we might say, uh, save democracy. So if you're interested in our Dominion segment, uh, go give that a read. Alan, how about you? So I have uh, two quick ones. Uh, So the first object lesson is what, uh, in the language of The Daily Show, would be called a moment of zen. And that is that the website Pornhub, which I assume I don't have to explain any more about, uh, awarded Stormy Daniels, speaking of the Trump DA case, awarded Stormy Daniels its Lifetime Achievement Award. And I will just read the first sentence of the award. The Lifetime Achievement Award recognizes and celebrates the contributions of a single performer who has made an unparalleled impact on not only the adult industry itself, but mainstream culture and hell, maybe the future of democracy in this case. So, you know, I'm not sure we can include a link to a Pornhub page on our show notes. I don't know if we can. But I guess you can Google for it, but don't do that on your work computer. Um, The uh, other object lesson is a really delightful movie that uh, my wife and I watched this week, uh, Sharper. Uh, It's on, I think, Apple Plus, Apple TV or something. It's uh, one of those sort of A24 independent uh, kind of ish uh, movies uh, with just a fabulous cast. Julianne Moore is in it, which is I think all anyone needs to know. Um, and it's like this like heist psychological thriller, super entertaining. Two hours, you know, it's like a fabulous smart popcorn movie. So highly recommended. Excellent. Well, for my object lesson this week, I am bringing you 
at the risk of losing our audience, another podcast. Uh, I think a year ago, a little more than a year ago, probably at this point, I plugged The Lazarus Heist. It is one of the best podcasts I've ever listened to, bar none, from BBC. Uh, phenomenal dive into The Lazarus Group, the North Korea-backed hacker and cybercrime group that has pulled off some amazing heists over the last decade. They're back with season two, which you can get about the first half of up on the BBC website, a few less in your podcatcher. Uh, and I got to interview the host for the Lawfare podcast, which should be going up later this week. So tune in there for a discussion about season two, as well as a sneak peek at one of the episodes. It is a phenomenally interesting, far-ranging story talking not just about cybercrime, but how it intersects with North Korea's history, the history of North Korea's interactions with the region, with the United States, with the broader world, and lots and lots of policy questions that are facing the United States and the rest of the world today. Just a phenomenal, phenomenal podcast uh, that I am avidly devouring as they come out and recommend you do the same. And with that, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. So be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links and past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. While you're at it, be sure to follow us on Twitter at RATL Security, and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. And don't forget to become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com slash lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, and our special guest, Jed Sugarman, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Till then, goodbye.